part three of our uh, series called You Don't Complete Me. And up to this point in the, in the series, I feel, I feel like anyway, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like it's been pretty tame. Um, like there's been some good stuff that we've talked about. It's been, it's been pretty tame um, so far today. Uh, I, that might change. I, I don't know. So um, I'm not going to prepare you much today. I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction to the text, and then we're going we're gonna to dive in because uh, the text we're going to look at today is one of those things that, it's one of those parts of the Bible that a lot of people, especially in today's world, can get kind of bent out of shape about. They get a little upset about. So, um, so let me just give you a little background on the text, and then we'll, um, we'll move on. Uh, what we're going to read today in the book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul, a uh, long time ago, right? It's a couple thousand years ago. And it was written to brand new Christians in a city called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a Roman colony of Greek people uh, that was kind of on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea from Jerusalem and where uh, Paul got his um, beginning. Um, and so Ephesus is, is important. If you go and you read the book of Acts, what you discover there is that when, um, when Paul went to Ephesus, there was a big, it was a, it was a problem. And so Ephesus was the center of worship for the goddess Artemis. Uh, and so they thought Paul was kind of trying to get people to not worship Artemis anymore. And so he like, it was, it was a big fight. It was not a, not a pretty scene. So Artemis is the goddess of sexual fertility. So you can imagine it's an ancient culture, the, the idea of gods and goddesses is, is pretty big. And so if you're the goddess of sexual fertility, there is some stuff that's going to go on in your worship that um, probably would make us in today's culture like blush. Like, like there's some not, some not good things. Like I, I just found out this week that uh, one of the things that people would would do, I'm basically stalling for them to get, get this going. But one of the things that people would do, so this was the center of worship. So the, um, the temple of Artemis is in Ephesus. It is one of the eight wonders of the ancient world, this incredible temple. And they have a, a great big um, statue of Artemis there. <laughs> statue, I don't know, say. So the statue of Artemis there in the temple. And once a year, the people of Ephesus would take this statue and they would carry it. it would, it's this huge, big deal. And they would carry it down to the ocean front and they would take it into the water and they would wash it uh, in the water. And they believed that this washing of this statue of Artemis uh, turned her back into a virgin. And, and then once they washed her, they would, they would haul her back up to the temple, to the, her, her temple, uh, up at the hill there. And, and so the, the rule was, and we've got some young people here, so I'll be as uh, PG as I can. The, the rule was that by the time she got back to her temple, her virginity was gone and so was everybody else's. So it was free for all in the streets of the city as they, as they made their way back up to the temple. This is where Paul went to preach and talk about, um, 
Jesus. And so this was a, uh, it was a crazy place. In fact, we've been talking a lot about the position or the place of women in the, in the world, really, uh, back in that day, in ancient times. And the city of Ephesus may have been the only place where women had any power uh, because of this uh, temple worship and this worship of the goddess Artemis. The, the problem was that the women only had power uh, in this area because it was sexualized power, because of Artemis and, the, and, and this fertility goddess. And, and so they used their sexuality to gain power and, and position in, in this city. And so that's what Paul is speaking into when we begin to read in Ephesians. And so we're going to jump into Ephesians 5 and just kind of let the chips fall where they may. Here's what it said. No, go back. Thank you. Uh, here's how he starts out in verse 21, Ephesians 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's the general statement heading here. He then says, wives further submit... Let's say that again. Wives, further submit to your own husbands, just as you would to the Lord. Is there anything that God tells you to do that you say, no, I don't want to do that? There's not supposed to be anything. So if I had a marker, I'd underline that. Okay. Uh, for the husband, pay attention to this part, ladies. For the husband is the, what's that word? Yeah, head, top chief, head of the wife, just as Christ or King Jesus is the head, the top, the chief of the church, which is his body, uh, and is himself, he himself is its savior. So you're getting an idea of why people don't like Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, now, as the church submits to King Jesus, so also wives, he's like saying it again. He's like, you might not have got it the first time. Ladies, submit in everything to your uh, husbands. Submit in, go back, everything, everything. To your husbands, um, and, and again, now you see why people have a, a problem this with this this, and it and it centers around this word uh, submit. We, <laughs> yeah, every guy in church is like, you preach it, yeah, amen. Woman's like, I, why did we come today? I didn't even want to be here. Um, so you read you read this text, and and what is the thing you get? Okay. So we're both, husband, wife, we're all people, male, female, we're to submit to Jesus. And then, and then women, you, you leave your husband here and then you further submit. To your, you got to do everything that Jesus says and you got to do everything that your husband says. Um, and not just your husband, but really males in, in general. Because if husbands are the head, then males are the head. Uh, and, and so, um, uh, look, Middle Eastern countries say there are Middle Eastern countries, even today in 20, 2023, um, that, that treat women this way, according to uh, Ephesians 5. Second-class citizens under the thumb of their uh, husbands, they have no power in the relationship. And, and so I've actually, I, I know of 
of pastors and, and, and churches and, and places that, preachers that, that teach this, um, and, and other, a few other, very few other passages in, in the Bible, and just say flat out, without question, this is the way it is. The man is the head of the house in every situation. He is the final word. He is the spiritual leader. He is responsible to God for his household. He is the head, the chief, the top, whatever, banana. Is that, uh, was that what you say? Anyway, whatever it is, he's at the, he's at the top. But I, we're going to look at this a little closer. If you haven't figured it out today, one of the things I like to do is go, this is what it sounds like, but maybe it's not that. So we're going to look at this um, just a little bit uh a little bit closer today. And then we're going to do what we've done a lot this year and the end of last year. We're going to go uh, back to the beginning, to Genesis, and see if we what we read there can shed any light here into Ephesians 5 and then into our lives as well. So um, we're, we're going to look at this uh, again, because if you're angry this morning, like, I don't know, if, you, if this is your first time here, I'm sorry. Hold, it'll get better. <laughs> Just hold on. Uh, stick with us a little bit. Um, if you're angry about women being told to submit, then we really need to look at the rest of Ephesians um, chapter 5 because there, there are some huge problems uh, in this uh, text. As each spouse submits to Jesus, then wives are to further submit also to their husbands. And verse 24 says that this is to mirror the way that the church submits to King Jesus. So women, you are a mirror. You're a picture of the way that the church submits to Jesus. And of course we would say the church is supposed to submit to Jesus its king in everything, all the time, whatever Jesus says we want to to do, and so you then translate that to your role as a, as a wife, and pretty soon, what does every man in the room want to say? You have to do everything I tell you, because in this relationship, I am Jesus, and you are the church. Because uh, that's, that's where this goes. Now, um, I, I don't know if you all know my wife or how well you know my wife. Um, there are a few times where I, as the pastor and as her pastor, where I uh, <clears throat> muster my courage and say, submit. <laughs> and I will just tell you, whatever it is that I'm asking or telling her to submit in, I just goes out the window. Because at that point, it didn't happen in no matter, no matter what. And I try to remind her about Ephesians chapter 5, but she doesn't want doesn't to hear it. So anyway, um, this is the picture. Wives to submit to their husbands in everything, which means there is no thing where a wife can say, I am not going to submit there. Like there's no room for that in, in the text. But I want you to notice, again, husbands are called the head of the wife. And so... You go, what does it mean to be the, to be the head? As a, as a husband, what does it mean for me to be the head of my wife, the head of my, uh, the head of my household? Well, th there are some subcultures in the U.S. Uh, today. There aren't many, but there are some subcultures in the U.S. today where when the husband comes home, the food is ready. 
I'm not just ready, not just it's going to come out of the microwave in 30 seconds, but food has been prepared all day long for when the husband comes in the door and it is on the table and everything is ready and he walks in and nobody eats until he comes in and he comes in and he sits down at the table and he eats. He takes as much as he wants of everything that's on the table and then the children eat and then the wife gets to eat from whatever is left over. This is literally the way it works in some of you subcultures in um, our country uh, uh, today. Now, when I was a kid, my father always sat uh, in his seat at the dinner table. Anybody else have their dad who had a seat at the dinner table? Yes, we're just dating ourselves, right? Dad had a seat at the dinner table. We didn't eat until dad um, got home. If we had guests over to the house, and it was dinner time, they would come into the um, kitchen, the dining room area, and, and they would ask, where does Vernon sit? Because nobody's going to sit in dad's seat at, at the table. And um, wherever dad sat, what did you call it? The head. Dad sat at the head of the table all the time. Nobody ever sat in dad's, uh, dad's seat. Now, growing up, Dad always got the biggest bowl of popcorn on Sunday night. And we were one of those families where we'd come home from church on Sunday night, and uh, we, Mom didn't cook. We had popcorn every single Sunday night. And so we come home. Dad got the biggest bowl of popcorn, and he went into the living room, and he sat. Do you know where he sat? In his chair. Yep, nobody could sit in Dad's chair in the living room. And Dad, when he sat in his chair with the biggest bowl of popcorn, Dad got the remote. Do you remember what that was back in the 70s? The kid closest to the TV <laughs> changed the channel. And to further blow your minds, we got some young people up here, we didn't have remote controls at anything. The kid had to change the channel, adjust the rabbit ears, um, and we watched TV on a 13-inch black and white television. That's what I remember watching TV on uh, as, as a kid. Um, if you're the head of the household, you expect the most honor, right? I mean, that's what it means. You read those few verses of Ephesians 5, and you go, I'm the man, dang it. I'm the head. I'm supposed to get the most honor. And so what we expect to follow those first few verses in Ephesians 5 is a list of all the ways that the husband is superior, amen, and how he should be awarded for simply being the man in the relationship. Because notice in the text, nowhere does Paul say, wives, submit to your husband if he is worthy, if he treats you well, if he bought you chocolates on Tuesday, even though you said you didn't want any, if he got you flowers, if he took you out. Nowhere does it say that. It says the man is the head of the household, period, end of sentence, that's it. And so we expect what's to follow is to Paul say, here are all the ways that the man is superior. Here's all the ways that women, you should submit to your man, all of those um, kind of things. So let's look at the perks of being a husband. Husband, love your wives. Wait a minute. This is not going the way I expected so far. Uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What? That does not sound like I'm the place of honor and the chief and the head here that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, but with the word. You remember what I told you in the opening? 
What did they do with Artemis once a year? They washed her with water. Do you get the connection why Paul uses that? Interesting. Wash her with water, but not the water of the sea. Wash her with the water of the word so that he might then present the church to himself. Remember, the church represents the wife. Present uh, the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And I think there's another uh, part to this. If we go to the next slide, maybe. Are we ready to go there? Yes. In the same way, husbands love your wives as their own bodies. I'm supposed to love, I'm the head, but I'm supposed to love my wife as my own body because if I love my wife, I love myself. And no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Jesus does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And I'm like, wait a minute, I thought I was supposed to be the head. And this does not sound like what I expected it to sound like. This is not a list of all the ways I'm superior. This is not um, right. I thought as the man, I got to do whatever I wanted, make whatever rules, say whatever I wanted, and my wife had to submit to me in everything. That's what you just said, Paul. It doesn't look anything like we expected it to. Instead of being superior, it seems like I'm supposed to be the servant. Because that's not what I thought. That's not what I signed up for. In the, like, I was with you, Paul, in the first few verses, and now I'm not so sure. I think you've gone off the rails. You're, you're crazy here. Because instead of the perks, I'm supposed to give the presents to my wife. Instead of demanding she serve me, now all of a sudden it looks like I'm supposed to meet her needs. I'm supposed to take extra care of her and by doing that, somehow I'm taking care of myself. And then at the end of that, I'm to leave my family and hold fast to my, to my wife. Now, in the culture of the day, the, the man and the, and the woman, they fell under the man's side of the tree, right? The family tree. And so if you were a man, you were expected to follow in your father's footsteps. The wife would leave her father and mother, and she would come and, and the man would build a room onto his parents' house. He would take over the business. He would share in their money. There was an inheritance. There was all kinds of, of, of power in the name and all kinds of things tied into that. And yet Paul says, jump ship from your family and hold tight in this raging ocean of the world to your wife who then becomes your life preserver. Like, this is crazy. This is not what we thought we were getting. So Paul, like, he just shakes things up in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. He totally turns upside down the idea of what the family was supposed to be like in the ancient world. And so I'm going to take his lead a little bit. Because in the midst of these patriarchal cultures and the realities of how we can create hierarchy in the household. The idea we actually get from the Bible is not what we have been taught in the church. So if the things I've said already about Ephesians 5 and the man being the head of the house and all of that kind of stuff, if that resonates with you because that's what you heard growing up in church, that's what you've been told, or maybe you didn't go to church, but you knew enough about church that you knew, well, the man is the head and he makes the decisions and he does all the stuff. 
The idea we actually get from the Bible is not what we've been taught in the church. Why? Because men are in charge. We don't want to tell you what really the Bible says. Um, and, and so there's these, um, th- there's these issues today because um, we have this highly educated society and we've read the Bible and yet we still, uh, we still get it wrong. Look at it this way. God didn't put a child, a parent and a child in the Garden of, of Eden. He put a husband and a, and a wife and, and that relationship, that husband-wife relationship should supersede every other relationship we have in our, in our lives. Let me say that again, because a lot of you have children. The husband-wife relationship is to supersede every other relationship that you have in your life. Yes, moms, love your babies. But the love that you have for your husband should supersede that relationship. What we see in the world today is we are loving everybody else except the spouse that we're supposed to be at the top of that relationship with. And so everything that the kids do, we're going to this and we're going to that and we're making sure they have everything they need and we're neglecting our spouse in the midst of all that. This relationship should be at the top in our lives. Marriage was designed by God to be the most intimate relationship. The most intimate relationship that you or I experience with another human being. It was designed to be a literal once in a lifetime relationship. And that was the plan Right? That was God's plan, even though it's really never been humanity's practice. <laughs> and we know that's, yes, God, we know that's what you said. This is not really what we want to do or how we live our lives. And so I, I want to drive this home a little bit further, and we're going to jump back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. So um, Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He creates uh, the six days of creation. Uh, Remember, he separates in the first three days. Then he fills the things that he separated in the next three days. And on the sixth day, he creates man. And and Genesis 1.27 says he created man and woman, and he did that in his image. Now we jump to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is like shining a spotlight on the sixth day of creation. That's what you see. Because chapter 2 and chapter 1, they sound an awful lot like the same story. But really, we're just getting a a, a closer up picture of day 6. So, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. So, it's just dry ground. The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground. So, So, he's saying like this is before he creates Adam. There was a mist that was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living, uh, a living creature. Um, and I, th- I think, okay, maybe that's, maybe that's it. Yes, okay. So we're getting this spotlight on the sixth day of creation. 
Now, Adam, we know from the story, was created first. He's created as the representative of humanity. God creates Adam. God gives Adam all his rules. How many rules did he have in the beginning? One. You can do anything. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only rule. One. You got one rule. And so he gave Adam that that rule. He says, the one thing you got to do, and he does this before Eve comes along. Eve does not get that rule from God. Only Adam gets that rule. Why? Because Adam was created first. It's important to, to know that. He was created as the first of God's um, creation. And so then God makes this garden, and he puts Adam in the garden, and then God begins to recreate creation in front of Adam. So he puts him in this garden, but there's no plants. There's no animals or anything in this garden. And then God says, uh, okay, tree, like oak trees spring up, and pine trees spring up, and this thing come up, and all, and these plants just started sprouting up from the ground. Like these full things just came out right in front of Adam while he was um, watching. And you go, why is this important that this happens? What's going on here? Okay, Adam shows up on the scene as a man, right? God doesn't create a baby. He creates a, a man, a full-grown man. And Adam sits up, and he's like, all of a sudden, whoa, what's going on? Where did I come from? What's all this stuff? I don't know what's happening. And God says to Adam, uh, hi, I'm God. Uh, I created everything. I just created you. Uh, and so here's the rule. Eat from anything except the tree in, in the, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam uh, goes, prove it. How do I know you created all this? Maybe somebody else did. Maybe you just showed up on the scene and I was here and you had nothing to do with it. Where'd you come from? Where'd I come from? How'd we get here? And so God says, look, I'm God. I created all this. And to show you that I created it, so you trust me and you know the power that I have, I'm going to recreate creation in front of you so there are no questions about the power I have versus the limited power you have. And so he makes all these springs, these things um, spring up from the ground to prove it to God or to Adam so that Adam trusts him. And he goes, okay, you, you are God. You have the power. I can't do that. And so he brings all of these things up. So let's look at the next uh, verse. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And we're like, yes, God, good idea. Adam needs somebody else. And so what do we expect to read next in the text? God noticed that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. He needed a helper. So God made woman. That's what we expect to see. That's what the next verse should say. He knew it wasn't good for him to be alone. He needed a helper. God made woman. That's what we expect. But just like Paul in Ephesians 5, God's going to throw us a, a curveball here. We don't get what we expect. Here's what we get instead. Now, out of the ground, Lord God formed the woman. No. Instead of the woman that was supposed to be the companion for Adam, he decided to form every beast of the field and every bird in the heavens. Let me just ask you this. Do we have as many birds and beasts now as we did in the beginning? History, science 101. Do we have as many now as we did back then? No. Things go extinct, right? So there was lots more animals, lots more birds back then than there was 
today. And God creates all of them, and then he brings them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And you're like, what? Why is it? You were supposed to create a companion for Adam because he was alone. It wasn't good for him to be alone. What's the deal with all the animals? And so the man gave names to the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God says, it's not good for you to be alone. You need a helper. So look, stand here a minute while I recreate every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, every animal that is on the land that has ever existed. And then I want you to take the time to give them all names, to name every single animal on the face of the planet. And you're like, this does not make sense. That's why I don't have hair, because I should read the Bible all the time. This does not make sense. I thought you're supposed to create a helper and instead you have him name all these animals. This is not, it's not the way it's supposed to go unless you notice what's going on. Because God is a loving father. And so um, here's what would have happened. If God says to Adam, look, it's not good for you to be alone. You need a suitable companion. Boom, here's Eve. Uh, she's naked. And here you go. Adam's like, this is awesome. Like right at the beginning, he's like, this is awesome. And the, and the first time he says to Eve, submit, and she doesn't, he goes, look, that's a big world out there. I don't know what else is out there. Maybe there's somebody better. I, I need to go check. This is what God does. God creates every animal and every bird, and he has Adam name them so that the end of this little adventure of between God and Adam, Adam realizes this very important truth, that he is utterly and completely alone in his creation on the planet. That there is no thing else. There's nothing. There's nothing for him to be in relationship with. And then God says, okay, Adam, now that you have come to the conclusion yourself that nothing else is going to, to match you, to fit you, there's no other creation that I have that is like you, now let me create this companion that I have. And so God was giving Adam space to come to this conclusion himself self because that's what a loving father does. And so Adam realizes he's completely and utterly alone and then God creates his companion. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and while he slept, he took one of his, his ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. Now, you, you, your Bible is gonna say this. He took one of his ribs. Men do not have one less rib. I remember being a kid and thinking we had a, one less rib than women did. This is, goes back to Adam. It's not true. Um, the literal Hebrew text actually gives the, the picture, and, and, and Hebrew language was about pictures. It wasn't about these specific words. And so the literal picture of the Hebrew is that, that God reached down and took a, a handful of atoms. He took, he took flesh and bone. He took um, veins and blood and, and DNA, everything that makes Adam, and he took some of Adam away from him. And then he created Eve from that. So she was made from Adam. What does, that, what does that mean? It means that she matched him. She had flesh and, and blood and, and bones just like 
Adam. She was a, a mirror. She was a, a copy of him in some respects. But the actual, actual Hebrew text tells us that God actually spent time. Like he threw Adam together, if God could throw anything together. He threw Adam together from the dust of the field, but Eve, he crafted. He's like, I love this guy, Adam. I want to give him the best thing, that I, the best companion that I can give him. And so he crafted Eve. And so guys, that's why we look at our wives and we go, yeah, God did a good job here. Like, yay, yay God. This is, this is really crazy. Okay, this is not just a rib, it's, it's a sum. And, and the Lord God, take it from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So he wakes up from, from the, the drugs that he was given. And then the man says, this is really cool, at last, I've seen every creature that God has created, every single one of them, and at last there's one that looks like me, that I can be in a relationship with. She's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Now, in the Hebrew, man is ish, I-S-H. That's the Hebrew word for man. He names her woman. The Hebrew word for woman is isha, ish and Isha is incredibly similar. He's like, she's so much like me, I'm gonna actually name her almost exactly my name, Ish, Isha. She was taken out of Ish. Isha was taken out of Ish. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become, well, we've heard this before. This is what Paul says, right? A couple things here. Um, uh, some claim, because of this passage, and again, a, a really small group of other passages, that the woman is um, somehow subservient to the man because woman was created out of man. And, and so um, some Bible teachers and preachers will go, look, God created man as this amazing creation. Like he couldn't improve on it. He created man in his image, and then woman was like, she wasn't created in God's image, she was created in man's image. And so a, a woman is simply, from creation, subservient to her husband or um, to men. That, that because woman was formed from him and differently from Adam, that she's somehow less. But listen. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And, and what does it say? Let me, let me tell you what your, your Bible says. Um, it says uh, that male and female were created in God's image. This is, um, this is how the text reads. God uh, created him in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. This is how your Bible is going to read. NIV, ESV, all of those pretty much read the same thing. Um, God created him in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, God created them. That is not the literal Hebrew translation. Here's what it actually says. God created him. In the image of God, he created him. And the word for him in the Hebrew is singular. So Adam, like that's easy. God created him. Adam. In the image of God, he created, and your text is going to say him, but the Hebrew word is not singular. It's plural. 
And so really the text should read, in the image of God, he created them. And we would immediately go, oh, male and, and female, Adam and Eve, he created them. And then it goes on to say male and female, he created them. And so what we're getting is this, is this picture of creation. God created Adam first at the top. He was simply the first of God's human creation. And then God created her. He created them together. This was not singular separate events. God understood what was going to happen. So we have Adam at the top, and then we have Adam and Eve. He created them in his image. Then male and female were created in the image of, of God. And so we get this triangle kind of picture. It's Adam, and then it's Adam and Eve, and then it's all male and, and female. And so we're not talking about, um, or we are talking about the creation order, not the importance order. And some, we've gotten that wrong in the church for a long time. We've said man is the most important because he's first. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we both, male and female, were created in the image of God. It's just that Adam was created first because somebody had to be created first. And then God gave him the rules and he showed him everything. And Adam was like, yeah, I don't find anything that I have a relationship with. And then God created Eve as this special creation meant to, to complete him in a way, to be a part of him. And the Hebrew text actually tells us, we're going to look at this next week, that she was created as a part, like a missing part of Adam, but not the part that completes him. She was created as the part that opposes him. Teaser for next Sunday. Okay. How can woman be less than man when both men and women are image bearers of God together? That's the question. In the church, we have to ask this. How can man be superior if they were created together? And we best reflect the image of God when we're in healthy relationship with one another. Submitting, go back to Ephesians 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for our position under Jesus. So look, uh, here's how Ephesians 5, that section wraps up uh, in the text maybe. Next slide. Boom, there we go. Paul says, look, this mystery... <laughs> This, this mystery that I'm trying to explain to you about men and women and submitting and, and, and loving and how you're, you're not the superhero, you're the servant if you're the, if you're the man. It's profound. It's difficult to understand. It's bigger than you think it is. It's, it's not just this cut and dried thing. It's a profound mystery. What's a mystery? It's something that's difficult to understand and figure out. It's a profound mystery. He said, I'm saying that it refers to Jesus and the church. So we, it's not just about a husband's role and a woman's role, a man's role and a wife's role. It, it's, it's about Jesus, the King, and the church. And then verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's a profound mystery and it's profound because it isn't just about the marriage relationship, husband and wife, that the marriage relationship is a picture of Jesus and the church. And so when Christian husbands and wives function as God intended, they present a picture of Jesus' love for his church to the world. Our marriages are witnesses to the world for Jesus. And I think a lot of times we don't treat them like this. 
because we put our jobs ahead of our spouse. We put our children ahead of our spouse. We put what maybe moms, dads, and other, other people want ahead of our, our spouse. We're not jumping ship and clinging to our spouse for dear life. We're like, we're like in the boat just holding their hands sometimes. Like, I got you, because I'm still in the boat with mom and dad. Our marriages are to be witnesses to the world for Jesus. That's huge. And so Paul says marriage is a picture of something much bigger, this big relationship. This is a macro uh, image of marriage, that our marriages should point others to Jesus. But then he wraps up with this, in the micro, in the macro, our marriages point people to Jesus. In the micro, the best marriages happen when husbands love their wives and wives respect their husbands. When we do that together, not when one says I'm superior, but when they both come together and go, look, what do you think? How do you feel ab about this? Because I don't want to do something that you're not going to be comfortable with. And I don't want you to do something that I'm not going to be comfortable with. We're supposed to come to this together. When we complement each other instead of compete with each other, then in our marriages, we lead people to Jesus. And Paul said, that's really the goal. That's the mystery that in our marriage, we can point people to Jesus. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us and for giving us this picture in, in, in your love through Jesus for, for your church. And so God, forgive us when we have put other things ahead of our spouse and help us in our marriages to be pictures pictures of you, of your love, a love that never ends, that never runs out, a love that was demonstrated in self-sacrifice. And God, when we do that, then we become this picture that other people look at and go, wow, I, I wanna have that, not just in my marriage, but in my life. What is it that makes your marriage stick, that makes it work? And we'll be able to say, Jesus, because we don't live our lives like the rest of the world. We don't, this isn't a competition between husband and, and wife. We don't compete for things or attention or our children's um, praise. We're, we're, we're coming together. We're making decisions together and we're both submitting to Jesus in our life. And so um, God help us to do that. We just love you and thank you for this day and thank you for your word that is a guide and a light to us even when it's difficult to follow and even difficult to understand. Thank you, God, for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.